Welcome to my show, Midwife Talks. I'm Lindy Casey, midwife. I'll be discussing women's news, crunchy stuff, and birth stories. We've all heard it. We probably have even said it. You know, I want to get my body back after I have my baby. We have to stop telling women to get their body back after giving birth. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't disappear. Their body has just proven how capable and powerful it is. Never ever make a woman feel any less because she may have some loose skin or a little belly. That skin, that belly, it created life. That body is incredible just the way it is and every time she looks down or looks at her baby, it's simply a reminder of what an amazing creature she is. Margie Daco, who is an extraordinary midwife in the Las Vegas, Nevada area, said, all of us, every single one of us, are not going to end up with the body we started with no matter what you do. No amount of anything is going to make your 60-year-old body look like your 18-year-old body. Nothing. Trying to achieve that is only going to make you miserable. No one on their deathbed is ever going to say, thank God I died thin and never ate ice cream. Those are words to live by. Let's remember that. And please quit saying you got to get your body back. Your body is still there and it's awesome. Have you seen the commercial where an attractive woman in a frou-frou dress is seen sitting on a toilet in various scenarios talking about how she prevents her poop from stinking? If you haven't tried it, yes, that product really does work, but it's expensive and depending upon how many poopers you have in your household, it might not be realistic. This is how it works. The spray contains an oily substance that when sprayed onto the toilet water, it creates a film across the surface. When poop drops into the water, it sinks below the level of the water and the oil slick closes over it, forming a barrier. Any odor is actually made up of airborne molecules perceived as a scent or aroma of the source of the scent. If you smell poop, it's because particles, perhaps very tiny particles, are in the air. Ugh. That oil slick on the surface of the water in the toilet bowl seals in those molecules so they can't become airborne. Now that you know how it works, you can understand you only need two ingredients, but we add a couple more to make it work even better. You need an oily substance, and most recipes call for glycerin for that. You can also use dish soap or even olive oil. And you need a scent. Use essential oils because, again, if you can smell it, those molecules are in the air and you want to be certain that what you're breathing in the relatively confined space of your bathroom is going to not cause you harm, right? You can use any scent, but you might start to associate it with poop. So a special blend that won't mess with your brain might be a good idea. To make this concoction go further, you should dilute it with water and then to help the oil and water mix together, add some alcohol like isopropyl or vodka or even witch hazel. A little food coloring can make it easier to see coverage too. Here is the recipe. Fiddle with it and make it your own. Use an 8 ounce glass spray bottle. Use glass because essential oils can degrade plastic. 3 quarters cup water, 1 eighth cup alcohol, 1 eighth cup glycerin or dish soap or another oily substance and 15 drops each of essential oils for a total of 45 drops. I use bergamot, grapefruit, and lemon. And then you can add food coloring if you want, about three or four drops just so it's a bright color. I like to use blue because blue is not associated with anything else if you use yellow, that's kind of looks like urine, and if you use red, that kind of looks like blood, so blue is a good choice. Now put all those ingredients into the glass spray bottle using a small funnel. To use, 
Shake vigorously and spray onto the water in the toilet until fine film covers the surface. It doesn't take as much as you'd think, and the food coloring will help you to see how much is on there. Then do your business. No smell. Flush. Remember to flush. I've been asked why I didn't interject my opinion on the birth story in our last episode. One reason is that every person's birth story is their own. They process it through their own many life experiences and even when they give us their reasons for why they did something, we can't really know all the information that went into bringing them to that point. However, I can and will comment on some of those points generally. If you haven't listened to the episode, Touchy Touchy, go do that now so you can hear the entire birth story. Right off the bat, Jenny had an intervention that started her rolling down a certain path. She had a non-stress test because there was a concern that her baby wasn't moving enough. One way to check in on your baby is to do a kick count. Scientific studies indicate keeping a daily record of your baby's movements, and that includes kicks, rolls, punches, and jabs, during the last weeks of pregnancy is an easy, free, and reliable way to monitor a baby's well-being. There are apps you can download to your phone that will make that easier, but you really don't need one. Count those movements every day, preferably at the same time. You should pick a time when your baby is usually active. To get started, get comfortable. You can sit with your feet up or lie on your side, whatever it takes to get you really in a comfortable position. Count each of your baby's movements as one kick until you reach 10 movements. A hiccup, a wiggle, a roll, whatever, 10 movements. Write down when you started and when you ended. That will show how long it took to get to 10 movements. After a few days, you'll begin to see a pattern for your baby if you haven't already. Most of the time it takes less than half an hour, but it could take as long as two hours. As long as your baby moves 10 times in two hours, you're within the normal range of what researchers consider healthy. And after a few days, you'll notice what's normal for your baby. That includes the ways the baby moves, the locations, how it feels, and so on. Knowing what's normal for your baby is important. When normal changes, this could be a sign of potential problems and an indication to call your provider. Bring your kick count notes to your prenatal appointment. Babies don't run out of room at the end of pregnancy, but they do become more cramped. Their movements may change from a punch to a rolling nudge, but your baby should be moving. Now, what if your baby doesn't move? He may be asleep. You can drink a big glass of ice water or put a bag of frozen peas across your belly or eat something sweet. All of those are ways women have reported they stimulated a sleepy baby. You can download a free kick count chart from USA Birth. If you go to tribalearthmama.com and click on the podcast tab, the link will be on the page for this episode. The second point where Jenny's choice changed the course of her birth was when she decided to be induced. There was no medical reason to be induced from what she said. Even the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, doesn't recommend elective induction until a woman has reached 41 weeks. Unless there's a problem with her pregnancy or if she lives a long distance from the hospital and there's some concern, she might have the baby really fast. Jenny obviously lived close to the hospital because she was going back and forth on trips from the hospital to her house and, and that was in a relatively short period of time. How might her labor and birth have been different if she had been encouraged to be patient and she was emotionally supported in her natural birth plan? Things might have been really different. At that point, she was just being sucked along with the flow of the situation. Her water bo- broke probably because of the cervidil. She expected to be further along with her dilation, so when the Pitocin was offered, she agreed. She was tired, and she was worried about the 24-hour time limit that she'd been given since her water broke. Pitocin creates strong, unnatural contractions that are hard to deal with. 
and she was probably offered pain relief several times before she relented. Then, guided pushing. Guided pushing is often related to tears and managed third stage is not recommended in most cases. What would a more natural birth look like? Hang on, I got a story for you. Teresa lived in a small house, really just a cabin about two hours away from me. Her name and other identifying information have been changed and she gave permission for me to share this story. The town where she lived was a kind of resort town in a rustic sort of way. She was expecting her second baby. Now her first labor had been long and hard and though we tried a lot of different tricks, she got tired that time and decided to go to the hospital in hopes that they could either speed things up with Pitocin or give her an epidural so she could rest for a while. As it turned out, she'd had the baby in the small local hospital's emergency kind of slash triage area because the short drive had given her what she needed to turn that bend. Now with the second baby, she felt she knew a lot more about how to handle labor. For one thing, she wanted to wait until labor was further along and well established before calling her birth team together. Her pregnancy had been uneventful and when we got the call that she was in labor, she asked that we wait a while before coming up. We did, and a few hours later she called back and asked us to head her direction. When we got there, she was alone in the house. Her husband had stepped out with their toddler since he expected it to be many, many more hours before she began pushing because he was remembering what it was like last time. But things had progressed fast since we last talked to her. She was breathless and sounded pushy. But we didn't ask her any questions, and we didn't disturb where she was at in her head. We just quietly set out our gear, pushed a chucks pad under her, she was on her hands and knees on the bed rocking back and forth, and we didn't want to make her change positions or answer any questions, so we just quietly, intermittently listened to the baby's heart tones with a handheld fetoscope. The pushy sounds became pushing sounds, and still we held back our comments. Slowly, the baby crowned, and Teresa made a great sound of relief as the baby's head was born. With the next push, the baby came in a big rush, and my assistant made an effort to catch her, but failed. Luckily, the bed was right beneath Teresa, and the baby landed harmlessly onto the chucks pad. Teresa didn't move for a moment, and then untangled herself from the umbilical cord and turned over. She reached down and picked up her newborn daughter just as her husband entered the house. The baby cried briefly, and soon they were all tucked up in bed. We monitored her bleeding and other vital signs as unobtrusively as possible. A little while later, about a half an hour, Teresa started squirming around uncomfortably and I suggested she get up on her knees. As soon as she was upright, the placenta plopped out. We examined it next to her so she could watch and eventually we examined the baby right next to her and took those measurements that everybody waits for, the weight and the length. That's what most births look like at home. Let me know what you think about this birth story or share your own birth story by going to Tribal Earth Mama and clicking on the podcast tab. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to visit TribalEarthMama.com for crunchy how-tos, birth stories, and other interesting stuff. I'll see you in the next episode of Midwife Talks. Links to more information about the topics covered in this show can be found on tribalearthmama.com under the podcast tab.